the Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn here on Westwood One. Joining me on this episode, lots of good stuff. K.K. Downing, of course, formerly of Judas Priest. His new book is Heavy Duty, Days and Nights in Judas Priest. And then after that, we have got Ian McDonald of Honey West, but you might know him best from King Crimson and, of course, Foreigner. And then we finish this episode with the one and only Andy Darris of Halloween and that interview, folks. Whew, that was a beauty, and I will explain that as we get over to the third segment and the talk-ups. But first and foremost, let us welcome a repeat offender, or should I say co-host, uh, Alan Niven. Good day, sir. Good day, Mitch. Uh, would that make me uh, an offender of the faith? An offender of the faith. That's right. Or, or, or a defender of the faith. Either one. But uh, Yeah, either one. There, There is a lot of, of good stuff in here. And first of all, it, it was real, real great for me to have a chance to, to speak to Ian McDonald. I'm, I'm going to go see one of their Foreigner reunion shows in December. And so that was a great thrill. But, um, you know, K.K. Downing. From Judas Priest. I just saw Judas Priest in uh, Montreal at the end of August. The show was absolutely spectacular. Absolutely spectacular. Got a chance to meet Glenn Tipton. And of course, you and I have a friend that works on the crew. And I had a chance to sit and talk with him uh, the night before. So just a lot of great stuff going on in Priest world. And uh, you, of course, have had your own experience in Priest world going back to what? Uh, 1984, I guess, when Great White and the boys went on a trek. It's extraordinary to think it was that long ago. Um, and the very first time I actually saw Priest live was their last pre-production rehearsal before that leg of the tour, uh, which ran for about six months across North America. And I'd heard Halford on record and thought he was, you know, a great singer and so on and so forth. There was an element of skepticism where I went, can you really sing that well live? And I went and sat with their management and watched them do a run through and was just, my, my toes were curling. I could not believe how good Halford was and that he was actually better live than he was on record. Just one of the all time stunning rock and roll voices. Yeah, he really is. And so, Talk to me about that pre-production, because a lot of fans, some fans understand what it means, some don't. So was that a full sort of dress rehearsal where they, they did the entire, whatever, 90-minute set, and they played all the songs, and they tested stuff? Or was it more sort of like twang-twang, twing-twing, tappity-tap, we're sort of mapping stuff? Like, Just explain to me what what that was exactly. It was a final, using the term dress rehearsal from theater is not inappropriate. Um, especially when we're talking about Mr. Halford. But, uh, no, very definitely, they ran through the entire set, and it was full out, pump the blood, go for it. Um, yes, it lacked that little bit of magic that develops when you've got an audience. You've got audience um, energy and reaction to, to play off. Um, but they weren't messing around. Um, you know, and, and the motorbike gets wheeled out, no gas in the tank, of course, because there's pyro on the stage. Um, but they, they were in full battle dress, but then, 
you know, old Rob likes to wear his full battle dress all the time. Um, I, I seem to remember that he once made the comment that the reason he was in Judas Priest was so as he could wear his leather 24-7. Which is funny because the the idea of leather and costuming actually comes up in K.K. Downing's book. And he says, hey, you know, we were dressing with, you know, satin shirts and, and all kinds of weird stuff. And then we had to sort of decide, do we want a uniform, for the lack of a better word? And anyway, he explains that in his books. I won't I won't reveal everything. I'll let folks run over and get KK's book. Of course, uh, Heavy Duty, Days and Nights in Judas Priest. So Great White is on this 1984 tour. How does the band get it? Is it, is it a management thing? Is it a record company thing? Does Rob like the band? Tell me the process of Great White landing on that tour. That was about the only tour that was going out Um in 84 that had a high profile and everybody wanted to be a part of and be on it um and great white were having their debut record released uh i think it was probably january of 84 was when we were releasing it and um rupert perry who ran emi usa the band's label at the time looked at me over a dinner and he said well priests are going out what are you going to do to get it and i said i'll go to london and ask for it and he said well good and i said what are you going to do to help me get it and he said i'll back you on marketing and i said fine so back in those days we didn't have much money to do things so when i traveled to the united kingdom i'd do it as a courier and it was a company called acsi and when i needed to go to london i'd call them up and go do you have a bag that needs an escort because basically you'd escort this huge santa claus type bag full of documents and small parcels and stuff and put it on the plane and walk it through customs and so on and so forth which made you a courier but the advantage of that was you got a free seat so i got my free seat over to london and i went and found bill kerbishley's office and uh um i had no appointment i hadn't been invited and i was told mr kerbishley was busy so i quietly said to his secretary well i'll be outside and i will wait until he has a moment and i went and sat outside on this cold step on out in the street and i ended up sitting there for three days <laughs> but eventually he called me into his office and he said what do you want and i explain the obvious i want the tour and he said why should i give it to you and i said well i've got a great band but call rupert perry uh he'll back he'll back us with marketing dollars and he looked at me and he said i'll call you and we were actually later on it was uh a month later or so we were back over in the uk we were opening for white snake and we were up in the yorkshire moors somewhere having a lunch on our way up to uh scotland and i got the phone call from kerbishley and he said you've got it i like to think that kerbishley was amused by the fact that i sat and froze my ass on his doorstep for three days i think he liked that that's funny that's funny the great the great white white snake tour that's a that's also a good tour now now two things here that that i'm gonna first i'm gonna hit you from the canadian perspective uh, Kickaxe was part of that tour. Did they open separately from Great White uh, on other shows or other legs, 
or was it Kickaxe, Great White, and Judas Priest? I, I don't recall. The, the the touring that we did with Priest was as a two band bill. Okay, so so Kickaxe must have done some other stuff. Now, there is that famous incident of June eighteenth, nineteen eighty four. Judas Priest gets barred from Madison Square Garden for life. A band that still exists to this day in two thousand eighteen. Were you part of that June 18th gig where all kinds of rioting broke out and half a million dollars of 1984 money um, of damage was caused to the building that, that led to this ban, or were you not part of that at that point? I would, I would have to say I think we were a part of that, Bill, because I remember what I do clearly remember is being um, in a club called the Limelight, which is a converted church. Right, right, which is in New York, so you must have been in New York. We're in New York, yeah, and uh, Glenn, shall we say, had a case of the sniffles. And I remember spending the evening talking to Glenn while he had a case of the sniffles. I might have caught a little sniffle myself that night. But um, yes, no, that I do remember in, in New York. It's It's unbelievable to me that something that happened in 1984, which from all accounts, wasn't really the band's fault. I mean, the, the, the fans decided to riot. I mean, you know, uh, it's still in place in 2018 that they've they've completely barred the band from there anyway. Um, of course, you, you did mention Glenn. I got to meet Glenn, like I said, in uh, Montreal. And uh, K.K. Downing in his book talks extensively about his relationship with Glenn. And so I'll let... I'll let the, um, the the listeners imagine that and go out and pick up the book and see what that's all about. But it is quite revealing. And uh, there you go. So d- shall we just uh, get over to KK? Let's get over to KK. And uh, yes, KK. KK uh, Downing. Glenn, Glenn definitely thought it was his band. But let's see what KK thinks. Yeah, let's hear what KK thinks. And uh, folks, just uh, just to let you know, this is interview number one. Um, KK and I had a great time. It went off really well. And so a couple of days later, they phoned me back and said, do you want to do a second interview? So in an upcoming episode, uh, either on uh, September 17th or 24th, I will have another KK interview in the can, completely separate of this one, uh, recorded at a completely separate time. And so you'll have more KK for the for the wanting or the taking or the listening or whatever you want to do with it. But anyway, here he is. The one, the only, guitarist extraordinaire, K.K. Downing. We are speaking with guitarist K.K. Downing. The new book is called Heavy Duty, Days and Nights in Judas Priest. K.K., first of all, absolute, absolute pleasure to talk to you. Uh, have been a fan since the early days, and uh, what you have done for, for rock and metal and just the history of it all, uh, just a big thank you. And so we'll start with that. Just a, just a big thank you for everything you've done over the years. Well, thank you very much, Mitch. Uh, that's very good of you. And uh, and thank you very much for having me on the show. And a big hi to all of the Westwood One listeners out there. Yeah. So so let's talk about this book. There, there's a lot of great details. And, and I'll be um, uh, upfront here. I saw Judas Priest on Tuesday, and I had a chance to meet Glenn and so on and so forth. And... Um, I'll talk about that experience a little bit later, but first, what compelled you to write a book? There was a little moment of silence there. You left the band, and then, you know, you went and did your golf course and the and the uh, the perfumes, 
for the, or the eau de toilettes, for the lack of a better word. And then, whoops, okay, we have a book. Why, why sit down and say, all right, I'm going to put this on paper? Yeah, well, um, I, think, I think to do justice to a relationship of some 40-odd years to, uh, you know, to, to um, the history, the band history, and obviously to my, to my bandmates, you know, obviously uh, um, I'm sure that irrespective of whatever happens after our togetherness and uh, all of the things that we went through, whatever happens, which is I'm sure that there's a, a spoken or unspoken uh, ultimate respect for for each other. Certainly from my, my part, there is. Um, and essentially, um, that was probably the reason for my, you know, quietness, really, after, you know... Um, quitting the band as I did, um, you know, and I just wanted everything to be, you know, um, as uh, discreet and as harmonious as it, as it could be, really, because, you know, it's uh, life's all about burning bridges or not burning bridges, um, you know, because um, you never know what happens. Life, you know, is, uh, is a long time and it is a journey. And um, and so that's what I wanted to do. But I just felt that really, with so much being, um, so much supposition and um, and guessing, you know, um, obviously now through the channels of the our great internet, it's fairly easy to uh, to get uh, a feel for what's happening, you know, and what people are saying. And um, and I just saw that far too many, many, many people were kind of didn't quite um, understand or cotton on to exactly what the reasons might or might not be for for myself just wanting to call it a day, you know. Um, and so I thought that um, with that in mind, um, that explanation was obviously required, you know, needed, um, um, along with uh, potentially being able to give people an insight uh, to my life as an individual, as a person, and um, and how it was, um, I thought that that just might be a good read for a lot of people, for a lot of things that might be relate to uh, um, things that are not particularly unique. Um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, rough upbringing and uh, turmoil in the the, the family, you know, uh, and uh, a lot of hardship and stuff. I mean, uh, because I know there's a lot of people out there that suffer the same, I just thought that it might be good for us to uh, be able to get together through my book and uh, and um, and just let people know that uh, it can happen to people like me. And... Um, and obviously the journey and and the uh the the transformation from that um uh, early you know hardship seemingly with no hope uh into having something as wonderful like a career in Judas priest you know and to be out there on the world's big biggest stages um was just a story i think that um that was um i wanted to tell you know, that it was, I, again, <laughs> I sound a bit like Frank Sinatra, as I guess we all do, but doing it my way, you know, 
uh, as a young English guy growing up against all of the odds. Um, it was just something that I felt um, would uh, be pretty good to put down in writing. You know, in now I'm kind of in the you know the latter years, the twilight of my life. Um, I thought a uh, good idea to do it now um, so that it kind of gets done, really. I say for, for lots of different reasons there, Mitch, you know. Yeah, and, and I'm going to jump around on the questions here because the book is, is, is actually very compelling and tells a great story. And what I find interesting in it is even through the ups and downs and, and personality clashes, it stays very respectful. There's no sort of cheap shots taken at it. And I, and I have to give you... Uh, you know, kudos for that, for not going down and down and dirty. Uh, one thing, and here's the problem with this book is, is no matter what question I'm going to ask you, there's about 20 that I'm not going to get to. So uh, let me start off with Rob Halford. Uh, you talk in the beginning of uh, finding Rob, bringing him in the band, and knowing that this is the guy that's going to get you to the next level. And then you tell a story about how Glenn Hughes was poached out of Trapeze by Deep Purple and that you were somewhat afraid that other bands were going to poach Rob. Um, talk to me about getting Rob in the band, knowing that his voice was that missing element that was going to take the band to the next level. And what were some of the pressures of those club days of other bands saying, hey, we need a singer, and there's a, there's a good one in that band over there called Judas Priest, right? I mean, poaching was part of the business. Yeah, it was, and, it, and, and I was very aware of that, that that could have, could have happened, you know. Um, um, it, you know, that, that, that can happen. One thing's for sure, and the reason I do broach on that subject in the book is that my awareness was there, is because quite simply, I mean, Rob had something very very unique i mean we all know out there you know um if you if you're not born with a special gift and an instrument like robin and not too many other people are i mean as a guitar player you can work at it you know i mean lots of people um even now in the world today look how many drummers and bass players and guitar players there's lots and lots of great ones but the people that have to essentially be born with something special uh, are pretty few and far between. I think we'd all have to acknowledge that, I think, really. Um, and the thing is, um, when you, if you want to become a great band, you know, you, uh, there's certain essential ingredients that uh, are certainly going to get you there quicker and with a little bit more security. Um, one is if, if you have a great vocalist, which we did, and a great performer, which we did, you know, um, a great frontman, as we used to say. You know, um, some bands had a really good singer, but not particularly a good frontman, or some people had a good frontman, but not particularly a good singer. Um, so uh, Rob was uh, obviously, not, I'm not going to say was pretty special, he still is today. Um, you know, uh, incredible at what he does, you know, uh, especially this late on in life, to be able to... Uh, to get on that stage and entertain thousands of people with his, with this incredible performance. Um, you know, so prior to Rob, really, my big, I guess my biggest hero was probably Ian Gillen, probably because of his vocal range, you know. Um, way back then in the 70s, playing Deep Purple in Rock, you know, and listening to uh, 
Charles in time and stuff like that, and Speed King, and uh, and uh, and also a vocalist had to deliver live, not just on the record. That was always a thing, you know. That that Rob was uh, was powerful enough and still is to be able to deliver this uh, this magic uh, up for us uh, live on stage every night. Yeah, he does. He does such a great job. And like I said, I just saw him on Tuesday in Montreal, and you know, after all these years, he's he's still got it. Still got it. Um, you talk in the book about the deal with Gull Records and how Rockarola and Sad Wings of Destiny were there, belongs to them, and you never made a, a penny from it. Recently, um, you've had to sell your catalog share for, for the publishing. Uh, talk to me about those early days and, and record deals, because... You know, you went ahead and you still played all those songs from Sad Wing of Destiny Years. Just quickly talk to me about that that record deal and the fact that you had to sort of sign everything away. Yeah, um, quite simply. I mean, we were Judas Priest, but we weren't, you know, we weren't um, the most savorable band around at the time. Um, we used to book ourselves in as, you know... Um, kind of, uh, you know, a blues, uh, a blues band, you know, a uh, rock stroke pop band, anything to really uh, get the gigs, you know, in hope that when we got there that people would love us anyway. I mean, most of the time they did, but, um, you know, to, to, to basically earn across those days and keep going, you know, um, especially being an unsigned band, you know, it was difficult really. We realized that if we had a record contract, you know, um, then we would get more live shows uh, and get to, um, you know, show people what we can do. Um, so, yes, I mean, the Gold Records uh, essentially was a, a stepping stone for us. And I guess without that stepping stone, we might not have um, collectively to, together may not have have stayed the course, you know, anything might have happened. Um, so I, even though it wasn't a great deal, but um, it was kind of the way it was back then to sign over, um, you know, 50% of your record sales and 50% of your songwriting to the same people. You know, the company had, you know... Um, the, you know, uh, a major share of um, of everything that we had. Um, you know, so so basically it led to the fact that, and we had very, very low recording budgets as well, but as I say, you know, in fairness to Gold Records, you know, they did put us out there, put us on record, um, but it wasn't sustainable um, to continue with that record company because... Um, even though we were doing pretty good, we thought, with the first two records, um, the deal was such that um, we didn't have any money, simply. And after the end of uh, Sad Wings of Destiny, we found ourselves having to work, you know, uh, at least part-time, um, doing all types of different things, you know, um, casual labor, I think Ian was driving a van, you know, and it was very disruptive of, of, to what we wanted to do because we felt that um, we should be songwriting or we should be gigging, 
you know, so this very much got in the way of everything, really. So we didn't really have that much choice, but to um, to research the market, we felt that we would, um, we felt that we'd made progress. We'd got two albums under our belt, and uh, we were playing better gigs. We were, and we were uh, a better band, uh, and we felt that justifiable. There must be. Uh, another company out there that would probably uh, fancy having us if we weren't signed to this uh, record company. Um, so that's what we did, really. Uh, a couple of phone calls were made, and uh, and we made the uh, the move to, I believe it was uh, CBS um, at the time, CBS Records, uh, or, or at least CBS Sony. Um, and so, and that's what we did. And um, a, a, a big, a big company that really, I would have to say this now, and I will always say it, that the company did, um, and are still doing for the band. I'm absolutely positive, a fantastic job. You know, um, the uh, the financial allowance for us to be able to record and do what we wanted to uh, was sufficient. And uh, needless to say, um, it, we were able to uh, to um, to basically improve, you know, in every aspect, in everything that we did more quickly and readily. And we were always available if someone wanted us to do shows or wanted us to do whatever we needed to do. Um, we were freed up to be able to do concentrate a hundred percent. On 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 the brand name Judas Priest. Yeah, and it's and it's funny because in the book you mention uh, Mahogany Rush in that sort of same chapter, and and I was just talking to Frank Marino, a friendly chat, not an interview, and he was talking about he's putting out a DVD, and he had to secure the rights to every single song because he's never seen a royalty check and he's never owned them, and I was like, huh, and then I read your book and I go, huh, what a what a horrible deal <laughs> that what a horrible deal that is, you know. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Um, as I said, last uh, Wednesday, I had a chance to uh, meet Glenn Tipton backstage in Montreal, spent five minutes with him. He looks incredibly uh, fragile, and I don't mean that to be disrespectful. Reading the book, uh, there is a clear, um, what's the word for it? <laughs> there is no love lost, I guess, between you and Glenn from, from the way, way back. Uh, Talk to me about that relationship, because as a fan, you look at it as this this twin guitar attack and some of the most memorable music ever made. But sent, but looking at the book, it's like, hmm, there there seems to have been a lot of um, sandpaper between you two, for the lack of a better word. Yeah, I mean, I think um, everyone will know out there that it's been in a relationship, whether it's husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend business relationship, you know, essentially this was a, a business working relationship, but it was also, um, I think the problem, uh, it wasn't just business, it was artistic, you know, it was, because uh, music's kind of a bit like that, so artists can be a bit more temperamental about their craft and things, you know, a bit different to, um, I don't know if you work in a baked bean factory or something like, you know, and, and, and that's your that's your business, you know. I mean, well, not work in the factory. If you're on the top floor as a boss, you know. Um, 
Maybe, you know, so lots of ingredients really come into play. I mean, music and creativity is very subjective and can be very opinionated, you know. So you have all of those ingredients to deal with, you know. And, um, I mean, let me start by saying that both myself and Glenn said before when I first um, started speaking about the mutual respect, you know, and that will always be there, I will always have the respect for, you know, um, let's just take Glenn. Now, obviously, we worked a lot, worked and played together, not just musically, you know, we would go out, you know, uh, you know, socially when we're on tour, playing, you know, some golf, tennis, you know, uh, chasing girls, whatever we did, you know, drinking beer, everything happens, you know, and we did a lot of work and a lot of stuff together. Um, but really... You know, in a band, can I say this? There's lots of uh, lots of kind of common de- domin- uh, denominators, really, with uh, with let's say four or five guys in a, in a band. You know, um, you, as much as you like to prevent and avoid a, a, a pecking order formulating, maybe it does. And as much as you like to avoid uh, the guys that don't have particular egos, we're happy for nobody to have an ego, but you can't. You can't stop, you know, um, these things happening. You know, it it does happen, and um, and so and I think that that's probably why, you know, an awful lot of bands do part ways. You know, because things like that, you know, uh, rear their ugly heads. But uh, but in in Priestar, I think it's fair to say that it, it wasn't. It wasn't anywhere near as bad as other bands and other people that I've seen. But, you know, was it there? I think it was, you know, that something is, you know, uh, inherent. You get people in bands, you know, you get more sort of uh, placid characters and other people would be more domineering and, um, you know, and and that's what happens. Does all that make sense? I think it does in any business relationship. You get... You get this one-upmanship, you know. Oh, I wrote this song. Oh, I wrote that song, and you know, I wrote this song where other people. All that matters is really is the band. You know, it's the band's song and the band perform it. Because at the end of the day, nothing ha- nothing is more important than the band name, Judas Priest. That is the star. That is the superstar. You know, can I say that? You know. Um, because it's, you know, and uh, because when, you know, let's say in 20, 30 years time now, there probably will, I'm sure of it, be a Judas Priest playing Judas Priest songs somewhere. There'll be, that will be going on. You know, but people will, the legacy of the band and the brand name Judas Priest with it, with all of its songs and its memories for people and the image, you know, that it's not the individuals in the band, it, it, Inevitably, you know, um, yes, it's true. I think it's true to say that some band members will play a bigger, a bigger role in, in achieving that goal. But at the end of the day, what is very special is the name. You know, uh, Judas Priest, you know, are appearing. Judas Priest are playing at, you know, um, and it's not K.K. Down is playing at or Glenn Tipton or Rob or Ian or Scott or where it's the band, you know. And so that democracy is something I've always been a great believer in, you know, um, you know, and that equality is something that I always aspired to have, 
inherently induced priest, you know. So, so yes, I mean, when one of, one of the band members said, uh, you know, I want to do a solo album, I want to sell my own T-shirts, I want to do this, you know, it's, it doesn't, for me, it doesn't work as well for me. It's not, you know, I always kind of said it's absolutely something I'm never, ever going to do, and I never did it. And, uh, and I'm proud of that because I gave everything to what I thought, thought that was important all of the time. If I had songs that I thought were worthy of recording, then because I don't want to record any song that, that's not worthy of, uh, of Judas Priest recording that song. Does that make sense, Mitch? I mean, everyone out there listening to me, I mean, hopefully, hopefully there's lots of you, you know, because yeah. this is my one man's opinion here. You know, um, you know the the uh, it, it's it's like if you're in the fleet, you know, I, you know, I, I want to be on the flagship, working on the flagship. If I'm gonna, you know, I don't want to be on a tugboat at the back of the queue, you know, and working on that. I want to be working on on the main event, you know, on the uh, anyway. That's just where I'm coming from, and that's what me as an artist that goes back all of those days creating and dedicating myself and, and everything that I did to Judas Priest, that was uh, more important than, than anything to me, that um, people's perception and people's acknowledgement and, um, of, of, the, uh, of, of Judas Priest as uh, an, the archetypal heavy metal band. And, and that's what I'd like us to uh, be remembered as. Yeah, and you know, you're, you're right about that A brand trump's band anytime and uh it was recently said to me that uh, fans buy tickets to a logo they don't buy tickets to a band uh right and it's true it's true it's true you know um you know i mean you know even with the you know um the great freddie mercury gone you know if i if you know if if, if queen come to let's say Birmingham or Manchester, you know, I'd want to, you know, I would be interested in going to the show and, um, and reliving as best as I could, you know, um, you know, that brand name of Queen, and I'm sure it would be a good show because it would have to be whoever's involved, you know I mean? But we get a lot of it now. And unfortunately, as I say, it's getting late in the day for us, for us guys, you know, um, you know, we, we're losing so many good friends, you know, um, as the months drift by. Um, so, you know, not everyone's able to deliver up, you know, an original um, trademark lineup. And, and certainly that's the case with, with us. It's a sad day to come, you know, but when that happens, but it has to happen, you know. Um, but like I say... There's no doubt if you go and see Judas Priest now, you'll see a great show, you know, and a great performance, and um, and and people, you know, um, will will have cherished and fond memories of of following the band for ten, twenty, three three decades, four decades, maybe more, um, because we it's it's a part of us. It's in our inner musical soul that you know that we feel. Uh, a justification, a need, and, and a want to be there to experience, you know, what might be the last time that you may see Judas Priest, or you know, um, um, and and 
and that's what we do. And I'm exactly the same. You know, um, if UFO comes to comes to anywhere near me, I'm going to go there. You know, because I know I'm going to listen to all of those great songs, and I'm going to see, um, you know, um, some some band members. Not all of UFO, but I know that they're going to be good. They're going to be selected musicians that can do a very good job, and um, and it's me hanging on to my cherished cherished. Uh, love of those bands on bygone decades, you know, and I will go there, and I'm damn sure that I'm going to have a good, uh, a good evening, and and uh, and enjoy it, uh, you know. Um, Agreed. While I can. Well, listen, like like I said, I I saw Priest on Wednesday, and and if you really do the math, it was only one original member, technically, right, Ian? <laughs> yes. And it was yeah. still, and it was still great. Um, you you talked about making just in your answer there about uh, you wanted to make the best songs for Judas Priest, not for KK. Where does that leave you in 2018 musically? But but for the return to Judas Priest, are you done with the music business, or at some point do you say, okay, I need to assemble a band or an all star thing, or or call in some friends and go and make an album, or is it Priest or Priest or nothing? I think. It probably is priest or nothing for me because that was my whole life, and um, and I'm not young enough, and and I, I think can I use the age as the biggest excuse? Maybe I can, maybe I can't. The guys out there are waving their arms and shouting at me, but um, you know, um, to, to start over, so to speak, is. Um, is never something that I've kind of um, wanted to do because um, when you've kind of spent all of your life building up, you know, to working your way up to playing these gigs in front of these people, you know, in, a, in an abundance, it's, it, it's hard at a certain age to wind the clock all the way back and make that start again, you know, and, um, and I think that the efforts really, especially with the songwriting and ideas and the recording and that, you know, I would probably just thinking, shit, I wish this could be a Judas Priest song, you know. Um, and so there's lots of things that go through my mind. So I've just been, you know, doing uh, an awful lot of things, you know, trying to help some new bands. You know, I'm always trying to stay in touch with the fans you know, whether it's interviews, doing the book, whatever, you know, it seems that I'm always kind of still there. I don't feel as though, you know, um, anything's been amputated from me, really, um, in respect of, you know, the fans, the industry, you know, um, I'm always there. I'm a great, I, I still like to think that I'm a, a great ambassador for, through my website, kkdowning.net. You know, there's uh, lots of... Um, the, you know, it, uh, there's, there's uh, there at the steel mill there, you can log in and you'll see that the, this website is run by fans. That's a fact. In Helsinki, in Finland, it's run by fans, um, professional people also. Um, and they, and we've got tons and tons of guests and bands and always trying to get exposure for, for new talent and plus do interviews with existing bands. It's a, it's a big fanzine site. You know, um, it's not it's not just all about me. You know, not by a long way. It certainly isn't. You know, uh, and I like that to be, have that involvement. You know, and to stay in touch with music fans um, across the world. 
um, it's, it's good and it keeps me very, very busy, for sure. I can imagine that because I ask because you look at Thin Lizzy's uh, drummer Brian Downey. He's out there with a band called Alive and Dangerous, where they play all the Thin Lizzy hits. So, so the thought of you not re, you know, restarting everything and and rewriting a record, but maybe hiring Ripper Owens and stuff and going out and doing uh, Judas Priest songs. Uh, across the globe that's something that just doesn't appeal to you you're you're not into that you would have to say i need to be with rob and with scott and we're going to do judas priest a side project is of little value well you know i think that um you know time does go by really quite quickly mitch you know and i didn't really know what was going to happen you know i think um you know, essentially myself and Glenn working together, you know, kind of come to a, a close, really, you know. Um, you know, sadly, because the thing is, you know, can I just say this? I think we're both good guys and we, yep. you know, whatever. It's just like, <laughs> we were just like, you know, uh, an old couple, really. You know, it was kind of, it kind of got that way, I think, really. You know, <laughs> lots of people out there, you know, for no one, you know, for no particular, you know, individual reason, you just think, God, you know, I can't stand this, any, you know, anymore, and and it gets to be a bit like that, you know. Um, so I guess when, you know, Glenn had decided to uh, not continue, I thought there, there was potentially a, a an opening for me because obviously the rest of the guys uh, know myself and Glenn and both of us as well as we know each other. Um, I thought that might be an opportunity, but the answer was no. So probably, you know, um, and I think the guys have got quite a bit booked again for next year. So I guess if I'm going to do anything, then probably I should think about next year. Ripper's a great guy, great singer, what a talent he is. It would be a pleasure to play again, you know, with with Ripper and some some guys. But the time's not just right for me right now, not this year. Um, but it's that everything will be on hold, you know, um, but certainly potentially, you know, um, I'm just, I've just relocated. So I'm putting my music room back together. I shall, uh, bury myself in there over, over what will probably be a terrible winter after this wonderful summer that we've had. Um, and see what comes out of that in spring, I think, and, and see where I'm at then, you know, um, and that's pretty much where it lies, Mitch, really. Well, well let's, uh, let's hope it happens. Now, one thing that I read in the book that perhaps as a fan over the years, I missed it. Maybe it's public knowledge. But you talk about Sharon Osbourne calling the band and saying, hey, do you want to come play OzFest? And we need you to have Rob. Um, talk to me about that moment and how instrumental was she to, to, to getting that reunion put together? And... Had she not called, was it sort of predestined that eventually you were going to call Rob anyway? Was it, or, or was it like, no, Sharon really put that in your head and they went, oh yeah, that's not a bad idea. Well, well, I mean, first of all, like I said before, Ripper was an incredible singer and it was a pleasure to play with him live, you know, and everything that we did with him. But unfortunately, there was times, and Rick will probably say this himself, we would play a fantastic gig and we would still come off stage and 
and, and got, you know, and fans were still, hey, KK, man, when's Rob coming back? You know, I'm still saying those things, you know, and and I guess my understanding and my evaluation and all the fans out there, all the music fans out there, you know, see if you agree with me. The thing is, at the end of the day, whether you like it or not, in the, the fans' minds and perceptions, and, and, and bless them, everyone, you know, that have been good fans of a band for so many years, in their opinion, for, uh, you know, there's only the odd, very, very odd occasional exception. But for the most part, there is one voice to one band, you know, if it's Mick Jagger to the Stones or if it's Bruce to Maiden, you know, or if it's Freddie to Queen. I mean, it, you know, uh, the list goes on and on and on, you know, um, but with the odd couple of uh, exceptions, you know, um, you know, if I mention the word Van Halen to me, it's Dave, because those first couple of records, you know, few records made such a big impact, you know, um, you know, on me as a, as a fan, a guitar player and, uh, and in the industry and, um, you know, um, and, uh, and obviously, you know, the great ACDC, you know, certain circumstantial things, you know, happened. I mean, as I point out in the book, we were, we did the highway to hell yeah. to with, uh, with ACDC. And I do mention, and I will say it now to everyone, what a wonderful, um, what a wonderful experience to play and to be with such wonderful, gracious people. Uh, as ACDC was an absolute pleasure, uh, and it, but it was a devastating blow and shock to hear after the tour, tour so soon that uh, Bon had passed away, um, and uh, so there was, I think, an acceptance and and, and a justifiable, justifiable acceptance because obviously the album and what Brian brought to the band and did, you know, and, and took up the baton for ACDC was very special and a wonderful thing. So <clears throat> there is a very, very rare occasion um, with that. Right. <coughs> Excuse me, guys. <coughs> Throat just dried up a bit there. Just uh, had a drink of See? very cold tea. See, that's but, why uh, that's why I keep cold coffee and cold water next to me. But but it's funny that you yeah. mentioned the uh, the uh, the Van Halen thing because I was reading through the book and 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 I and I read the part where you said David Lee Roth to me is the only singer in Van Halen. I was like, oh, okay, that's. Uh, you know, because I've always liked Sammy Hager, and I've I've sort of liked Van Hager as well. So that was that was a fun revelation. Um, <clears throat> yeah, uh, as I say, those guys are very much. It's it's very very. The jury's out. You know, um, and um, but the, the only thing was me. I remember seeing uh, Van Halen uh, supporting Black Sabbath in my hometown. Wow. <clears throat> in the in Birmingham, at a theatre, and. Um, it was such an enjoyable gig, what can I say? Um, and what a great performance that Van Halen, you know, uh, way back then. And that kind of just sticks in my memory, you know. And, and Dave had this kind of showmanship thing going on, you know, which was pretty cool to watch. And his husky voice and very confident. Uh, just, uh, you know, first impressions, I guess, you know. Um, it's... Uh, First impressions, I guess, uh, can I just go back to the one-on-to-one relationship real quick? You meet a girl, you think she's absolutely stunning, and it's a first impression. You never get hold of that, and you get together, and later on, maybe you might, you know, have another girlfriend or see another girl that may be prettier, you know, but 
it's that you never get over those first impressions that that girl made on you, you know. Uh, is that a fair comment over all the girls out there? Yeah, it <laughs> is. And I, and I know you do, you do talk about a, a, a comment. You do talk about a girl like that in the book. Um, just, just real quick here, because uh, unfortunately, I know you have another interview scheduled at the top of the hour, and I have yeah. another interview scheduled at the top of the hour. Hopefully, we could maybe uh, reconvene at some point and do a part two, because there's so much more to, to go over. But uh, let me start winding this down. Uh, you left the band a few years ago. At, at this point, is there any regret, and, and was it the right decision? Because in the book you say you could have left at any time since 1978. You had written a resignation letter or a quitting letter in 1991. Do you look back at it now and say, okay, it was the right decision, but yeah, you know, it wouldn't be bad to be with the guys again, despite all the nonsense, but we're still a great band, we still made great music, and we still have something to offer. Yeah, um, I, you know, it is one of those things, you know, um, you know, I just wasn't in enjoying the playing so much, you know, Glenn was doing the, dare I say Keith Richards, or was that dangerous territory, but anyway, or Jackson. Well, you mentioned in the book that he was, he was doing extra, he wasn't finishing the songs properly, you mentioned in the book. By the well, way, do you think that was part of early onset Parkinson's and maybe there was just some kind of muscle memory or, or, or do you really think he was just trying to be, you know, uh, I don't want to use a nasty word, but (laughs) you know, no, no, I think that uh, Glenn was more of a, you know, a bit more of a party animal really before performance and during a performance, you know, um, you know, um, so later on, obviously, um, you know, and um, like me, you know, I never, ever had a beer ever before I went on stage. I was so, you know, you get musicians that, you know, it's rock and roll to go out there with the cigarette and then the beer or the bottle of Jack Daniels. But K.K. Downing was a different entity. I'm very, 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 you know, I mean, maybe just maybe it's my own insecurity that just makes me. I feel that I have to be 100% fit and I have to be uh, mentally 100% and, you know, I, uh, you know, I don't trust myself, <laughs> I don't trust myself um, not to go out there completely, completely 100% on the ball. And, and, I, and the result is I really get off on the band being obviously really, really super tight and, you know, and precision, you know, and that, that was just made, that's how I do it, you know, and... And if it couldn't be that way, then uh, then that was a big part of it for me, in all fairness, you know. Uh, not saying anybody's right or anybody's wrong. If it just didn't suit me, that's the way that it was. It really was. Uh, KK, um, I would love to go on forever, but of course we both have this thing coming up. Uh, so I'll just remind the folks, Heavy Duty, uh, Days and Nights and Judas Priest, the KK Downing book, is out. It is fantastic. <clears throat> it is a compelling compelling read and what i like is that it 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 really comes off as a true story there's no chest pumping there's no the whole band is is was made by me there's no nastiness it just seems to be a good compelling story that is well written so 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 thank you for that and uh you know thank you again for all the music over the years and hopefully we can do a, a part two and have uh 
like another hour or something because there's so much we didn't even cover. It's we could certainly do that, Mitch. You <laughs> yeah. know, um, hopefully the it. fans will ring in and say, "Yeah, do it." You know, and oh, uh, you've got my contacts, and um, and I, it, it would be a pleasure to speak to you and um, and the uh, the audience um, one more time. That would be an absolute pleasure. Let me know. Absolutely, and I'll just. Uh, end with this, uh, a quick memory that came to my head. Uh, I saw you, uh, Judas Priest, with uh, Tim Ripper Owens at the Hampton Beach Casino Ballroom back in whatever year it was, and that show was spectacular. To see those songs in such an intimate setting was epic. It just was epic, and uh, you know, thank you. Thank you for everything. And thank you very much, Mitch, and uh, keep up the good work and, um, and in everything that you do and bringing music to the people. Thank you, sir. And yes, let's, let's, let's do a part two. I will let the publicist know. And uh, there you go. Merci. Okay. Mitch, thank you very much, mate. Take care. Cheers now. Bye-bye. Thank you, Mitch. Thank Bye-bye. you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. And a very big thank you to uh, K.K. Downing. I do encourage folks to head out and buy his book, Heavy Duty Days and Nights in Judas Priest. And, of course, stick around this show and this whole rock talk thing because K.K. is coming back and we will get into other stories that we didn't cover in that first interview. And now let us move over to Ian McDonald, who, of course, was a founding member of King Crimson and foreigner and folks who follow me on Twitter and Facebook and all that, you know I have been in a, well, a rabbit hole of foreigner for the last six months, just every day been listening to foreigner. I know, Alan, that's, that's, you're probably going, why would you do that? But I love it. That's why I do that. So, uh, you well, know. I, I can understand that to a certain degree. Um, I want to know what love is. It's one of my all-time favorite songs. I love what it says. Um, and who amongst us has not driven down the road a little too fast thinking that we are a dirty white boy too? Right. Um, which is a track that Ian actually co-produced with Roy Thomas Baker. But Ian, for me, is interesting in, in, in an even greater way than Foreigner because he was a founding member, as he said, of King Crimson. And when... The first album came out, Court of the Crimson King, that had a mega um, impact in my little English social world, and we were all incredibly impressed with it. Um, Of course, he left after that album, but he co-wrote a track called, if I recall, Devil's Triangle, that was on the wake of Poseidon. And I have to tell you, um, a little bit like having the sniffles in Limelight with uh, Glenn Tipton, um, I went to see King Crimson at the Oxford Town Hall uh, perform uh, just after the release of this record. And as I recall, I might just have been cerebrally stimulated. And what I do recall is that Devil's Triangle was stunning, overwhelming, and left me rooted to my seat, whereas my friends had to come and get me because I was the last person to leave the building as an audience member. Um, Just an absolutely stunning piece of work. Um, And Ian 
co-wrote that. Yeah, and 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 by the way, on the in the wake of Poseidon, he also wrote my favorite song title, uh, "Cat Food," which. <laughs> Right, what a, what a great you would like cat food. What a great yeah. what a great album title. But and, and but also the the in the court of the Crimson King, that artwork and I and we talk about it in the interview. That artwork is not just an album cover. It it is this iconic artwork that has shown up on the sides of buildings and on buses and T-shirts and there's and I pretty much think it's been voted somewhere along the way as one of the best album artworks ever. It is just a stunning piece of work. And Well, I, I thoroughly agree with you. Um, and of course, it was backed up by 21st Century Schizoid Man. I mean, that was the song of the winter that year um, in our little English circles. Um, but then, you know, you've got to remember that Ian's obviously a a very smart and intelligent person, but they had a bit of a brainiac in the band called Robert Fripp playing guitar. Um, So obviously they wanted to say something about something, and they definitely said something about lots of things with 21st Century Schizoid Man. And maybe they tried a little too hard, but as I recall, the artwork for for the follow-up record... Poseidon, uh, Wake of Poseidon had had the twelve archetypes of man on it, mm. um, so they were definitely stretching to make commentary and definitely stretching to stimulate. Yep. Um, and do you think we could get through the twelve archetypes between us? Maybe we should try. Um, <laughs> Why not? Well, we got we, we we've got the fool, we've got the observer. Uh, the, the warrior, the slave, the child, um, the sage, and, and um, the female representations, the seductress, mother, patriarch, um, yep, joker, mother so, nature. Yep, there you go. You're with me. See? Um, See? There you go. We got them all. And, of and, course, that first album had Greg Lake, you know, hey, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Hello. Exactly. Well, that's where he went next. Right. So... Um, that, 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 you know, a lot, a lot of people say that maybe King Crimson had their greatest moment on their debut record. I would uh, throw... I wouldn't disagree. Devil's, I would, yeah, but I would throw Devil's Triangle in there anyway, which I thought was an extraordinary piece of composing and yeah. obviously very affected when you're tripping balls and you see it live. And I, I, and and this is, by the way, the one thing that's always struck me about Foreigner is that people seem to forget that, you know, unlike a Kiss or an Aerosmith or even a Black Sabbath where it was, you know, four guys in a room or five guys in Aerosmith that came together and fought. And Foreigner, by the time they came out, these were, you know, weathered veterans. I mean, almost to the point of, do we dare say it's a super group? Because you got a guy from Spooky Tooth. You've got a guy that yep. was in King Crimson. Um, you know, Lou Graham, I mean, what was the band? Uh, Black Sheep, was it Black Sheep? So I, I don't know if that counts as, as, but Spooky Tooth and King Crimson. I mean, that's, that's not just nobody. And so Foreigner is, is in a sense, you know, I, I dare say like one of the first super groups and spectacular musicianship and their first three albums, all top 10. In fact, all top five. Like, where well, do you see you, that? You know, you your first supergroup, I suppose, as such, is really blind faith. But I thoroughly agree with you. These were guys who 
knew what they wanted and knew what they were going to do and had obviously been through um, a couple of successful bands and had a very focused sense of where they were going. Um, I mean, you know, that foreigner career is, is, is an amazing career, very focused, very consistent, and they came up with some songs that were not just consistent, but special. Yeah, and, 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 uh, and I just pulled up the billboard in front of me. So Foreigner from 77, number four, Double mm-hmm. Vision, number three, Head yep. Games, number five, four, number one, Agent Provocateur, number four. So their first five albums are top, top five. five. Like, you don't yep. see that. You can't say that for Aerosmith. You can't say that for Kiss. You can't say for that for Black Sabbath. Uh, I mean, it, it's unheard of. Unheard of. Yep. And, yet, and, and yet after Head Games, they threw everybody out, which is, <laughs> which, which is even more unheard of. Right? I mean, that, that's... that's yeah. But, okay. Yeah, yeah but um, very definitely, um, Ian's had a very interesting career. And I find it fascinating that on the one hand, he can co-write Devil's Triangle and then co-produce Dirty White Boy. Yeah, that's a man with that's a man with a broad consciousness right there. It really is. I bet he's, I bet he's been in both states of mind. Yeah, and and the other thing that's remarkable to me is that here's a guy who who's has guested on numerous albums, had all this success with King Crimson and with Foreigner, and yet when you look back in history, we think, oh, Lou Graham, we think, oh, Mick, uh, Mick Jones, oh, uh, Greg, Greg Lake. He's almost somewhat forgotten by, by the mainstream fans. I mean, you know, guys like well, you and he, me will know him, but it's like, whoa, you can't. I, I get the sense, I don't know him personally, but I get the sense that he's maybe a, a gentleman who has a sense of discretion. Um, otherwise, why would so few know that he put out a solo record called Driver's Eyes and the people who played on that record is a pretty extraordinary list of people. Who, who came and contributed, and it's a good record. Yeah, it really is, and, and that record that, that you talk about came out in 99. It is his only solo album, but you've got Peter Frampton on there. You've got Mitch Weissman, who's a personal friend of mine, but who was in Beatlemania, or the original Beatlemania. Um, who else was on there? Uh, real quick, uh, 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 we said Peter Frampton. But you've got this um, uh, G.E. Smith, just this yep. great, great lineup, and it's like, wow, you only made one solo. Anyway, so we, we talk about that, and of course, his new band is, of course, Honey West, and you can head over to honeywestmusic.com to uh, to find out more about the band. It, it's a fun, fun little rock band. I mean, honestly, you know, if, if we're going to be fully honest, is it going to be a top 10 billboard charting band? Well, no, in this day and age, it's impossible. But if you like Foreigner and you like Kim Crimson and you like these kind of little rock bands and stuff, well, not little, you know, but you like these rock bands, you'll like what he's doing. It's it's very well put together music. It's very enjoyable to listen to. And, uh, you know, so we'll do that. So now, before we get to the interview with Ian McDonald, let me quickly remind you that when it comes to hiring, you don't have to waste time. You need help getting to your short list of qualified candidates fast that's why you need indeed.com post a job in minutes set up screener questions then zero in on qualified candidates using an intuitive online dashboard and when you need to hire fast accelerate your results with sponsored jobs new users can try for free at indeed.com 
indeed.com slash podcast. That's indeed.com slash podcast. And of course, terms, conditions, and quality standards apply. And when you talk quality standards, Ian McDonald is absolutely, as we say in Quebec, top quality. So here, without further ado, is the one, the only, and current Honey West member, Ian McDonald. We are speaking with Foreigner and King Crimson co-founder Ian McDonald, who is currently in the band Honey West. Uh, pleasure to have you, Ian. Good day. Oh, great to be with you. Thank you, Mitch. Yeah, good day to you. Yes, and uh, listen, I, I will lay it on the table right off the fan, right off the bat. I am a huge, huge Foreigner fan. I could talk Foreigner all day long. I have a. Ah. a I have like a 150-song playlist in my phone. You, you tell me Lou Graham, or I mean, I interviewed Lou Graham about two weeks ago and Mick Jones about oh, a yeah. month ago. Uh, always a ah. pleasure. And so I do want to ask you about that, but let's get started with Honey West. Of course, last year in 2017, you had Bad Old World come out, the, de- the debut CD. And now this fall, we've got the uh, Collector's Vinyl Edition coming out. So... Talk to me about Honey West, the band. It is a band that you joined, not formed, if I'm correct. Yes, um, it was a, a three-piece band, sort of an alt country, for want of a better description. Um, uh, one, you know, one guitar, bass, drums, and um, it was actually formed by a, a neighbor of mine, literally. Um, uh, by the name of Ted Zerkowski, who literally lived right across the street from me, and we used to, you know, pass pass each other by, and we eventually got to to, to talking, and I found, you know, and I found out that uh, uh, he had had this band, uh, Honey West, and I went to see them play in in, in New York here, that that is, um, and um, I I like the I like the energy, I like the uh, you know the, uh, the 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 words that uh, Ted was uh, singing and writing, and I I was really um, at that time looking for some sort of major uh, thing to get involved with. I'd been I'd been involved in a, a couple of other bands that I went and uh, made some made some other um, records and, and and that sort of thing, but I was I was actually feeling a need to get involved in something uh something serious something um and uh, i asked if i could possibly uh, uh you know get 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 involved uh, with this band and they and ted was uh it seemed very and ted seemed um, glad to uh to to have me involved and so um i i joined honey west uh and um we uh, Ted and I proceeded to write uh, songs, and um, and we uh, ended up recording an album, uh, which is called Bad Old World. It's, uh, and um, I'm very uh, I'm, I'm very um, proud of it, and very pleased with how, how the way it turned out. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Well, and so let me ask you because when I say to my fan base, foreigner. They know what I'm talking about. When we say Kim Crimson, yeah. we know what I'm talking about. When we say Get It On, the T-Rex song that you played on, people go, oh, yeah, I get that. Uh, <laughs> but fans may not be aware of Honey West, and that's why we're doing this right. today, to make them aware. What are we getting? Yeah. Are we getting a rock album? Are we getting rockabilly? I'm just, I mean, I've heard the no. album, but explain it to them so they know what they're getting. 
Well, it's a, there are a variety of styles on the album, but basically it's a, a rock album. Um, the, 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 essentially, it's a um, sort of two guitars, bass, drums line up with vocals. Um, with uh, the album, so that's 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 the ba- the ba- you know the, the core of the of the uh, of the band. Um, and with, when we went in the studio, I I uh, uh, applied. <laughs> applied my production ideas and arrangements and uh, that sort of thing so uh, it's it's a, it's a it's a fully sort of rounded formed um album with a, a, you know with a, you know uh, proper production if i may say so and i i'm right. quite uh, i'm quite um uh pleased with the way it turned out and I, I basically produced the album and co-wrote a majority of the songs some of the songs were already uh, written by Ted before I got involved um, and um, one or two were actually even recorded the basic tracks were even recorded but um, we we um, it's a 12 song album and it's I really thought of it as an album in the in the traditional sense or the in in um, in the in the uh, you know the way the way I'd like to think of albums um, as a not just a string of singles or just you know one or two songs here that you can sort of cherry pick as it were, but a, an album that has a, a flow and an arc and a beginning and a you know and, and uh, a, 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 an end and you feel like you've, you've listened to an album and it's all you know also sort of a it's, it's not uh, well. Actually, with the vinyl release, it is in fact you know, side one and side two. Um, so it's you know thought of in that way. And um, the, the so in other words, the sequencing was a very important part of 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 making a uh, bad old world. And uh, that that was that was sort of late. That was formed very early on. I I I I, see, I, I had the sequence of the songs. Already, um, you know, they were already determined uh, way, you know, very early in the process. So it wasn't a case of, you know, putting post-it notes up on the studio <laughs> window and soon rearranging them and deciding what order. That was that was decided way way early in the in the whole the whole the whole process. Which, um, uh, you know, I like to I like to do. I like I I, I like sequencing. Uh, records and 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 the, the whole the, the whole process of, of of making an album. I love I love recording. I, I love playing live too, of course. But uh, I was determined to make a a, a substantial uh, album, and I, hopefully, I came pretty close to to um, what I you know what I wanted to do and what we wanted to do. And uh, it's been it's been very well received um, for those who've heard it. So I hope yep. some of your listeners or many of your listeners can uh, can you know can can get hold of it or get a copy and uh, um, hopefully enjoy it. Yeah, and I'm going to help them with that. Uh, first thing you can do is head over to YouTube. There is a video for Honey West Dementia. There's a lyric video for, oh. for you to check out, and of course, HoneyWestMusic.com on the net. Just head over to Honey westmusic.com there is of course a facebook page and all that stuff but i guess start with the website and work from there and of course uh, bad old world uh just absolutely worth checking out so w- let's go ahead no i mean i you mentioned the the, the video for uh 
for the for the, the basically what was the first single, and I have to mention that that, that was uh, directed by my son Max, uh, who is actually a member of the band as well um, uh, at this point. But he conceived of uh, uh, this uh, the, the the lyric video for um, for dementia, so, and it's 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 very clever, if I do say so <clears throat> myself. So I encourage your listeners to check that out as well. Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, one of the things that I'll be checking out uh, later this year in December is the Foreigner reunion shows. Uh, so let's okay. let's start with that. We'll start with the reunion shows and work our way back to to the beginning. But uh, on on August fourth and before that, you had you you did the first ticketed event where you and and Lou and Mick and everybody else got on stage with the current band as well. And you performed together. Talk to me about the reunion shows and getting back together, because there was a, there was a time where you know somewhere around 2004, Mick said, "I'm going to do this band," and sort of everybody else was left on the outside. But that aside, these reunion shows are very exciting, and and the press has been very excited about it. Talk to me about that experience yeah. for you. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's been it's been great actually. Um, <clears throat> Uh, I'm trying to remember how the whole thing started. The the, the uh, foreigner have been playing a, um, a show here pretty much every year at a place called Jones Beach, which is um, on Long Island here uh, in uh, the greater New York area. And um, uh, one, I, I guess it was last year, or the um, uh, Al Greenwood and myself were invited to, to to sit in, just to you know come on and play it on on the the encore or something like that and um that was turned out to be a lot of fun and um so um that developed into a more um uh, organized uh, way of uh, bringing bringing the original members or the surviving original members i should say uh, uh ed gagliardi is no longer with us um, uh, sadly but um uh rick wills uh, the bass player and um as you, as you mentioned, Lou and um, Dennis Elliott, the uh, original drummer, and so anyway, we've been um, we've done a, uh, uh, two or three shows now, uh, where the current um, the current foreigner do a I don't know eight eight, eight or nine uh, ten song uh, set, and then the um, original members. Come on, and do we do uh, four or five of our of, of the original songs? It's been very well received, and we are we're, later this year we're we're, do, we're doing a couple of shows in California, and then a couple more in on the uh, East Coast. Um, so uh, that that's uh, that's been you know that's been uh, been great actually to get together with um, get you know the the you know the original guys, and also to uh, to meet the the current touring uh, foreigner, you know, so, so that's another, you know, another, another thing that, you know, I, it was, I was a bit, I must admit, I was a bit apprehensive at first about the idea that uh, when, when we, uh, when we did our first shows in um, uh, Saginaw, Michigan, uh, once, you know, uh, we, we, we got the first shows uh, underway. Um, I, all my uh, uh, trepidations were, Vanished, and I've just had a great time doing doing this. Um, and uh, so, um, I, again, I encourage your listeners, if they can, 
to come and come and see the show. And it's a good show too because the the um, the current uh, foreigner put on a, a really big, you know, professional. Well, professional, of course, obviously, but um, uh, a, you know, a proper you know rock show with yep. you know, all the uh, all the you know all the lighting well, and everything else that goes with it. If I may, as a fan, I was very excited to see these shows and hear about them because. I like Jeff Pilson. I think Kelly Hansen does a phenomenal job, and, and and to throw that out entirely, I think would be would be I don't want to say wrong, but I I wouldn't feel right with it. And then to have you guys come on and do the original band lineup, where you do feel like the first time in Double Vision and Blue Morning, it it really yeah. is the best of both worlds. And so now I look at it as a fan, and I go, man, if if you know, if the Alice Cooper band could do that, and if Kiss could do that, <laughs> right? And 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 I start thinking about, you know, forget reunion tours. Let's have celebrations of entire histories and entire discographies. And and I think what Foreigner yeah. is doing is 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 brilliant, and it it works. And you know, so 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 kudos for you, yeah. by the way, for 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 being involved and and everybody else, because you know this is the yeah. Head Games lineup. This is the entire Head Games lineup, and you're like. Yeah, that, can, uh, that's right. Right, I can live with that. You know, that's that's a great thing. So, um, yeah. Now, so so let's so, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. No, I that that's 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 good. Good to know. I mean, uh, uh, it, it 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 really works as a, as a show. You know, so we've as I say, we've done I don't know maybe maybe four of these now, and um, so I'm looking forward to to uh, you know going to the west coast and the east coast and. Uh, just sort of uh, making a making a thing of this, you know. So. so, so since you mentioned making a thing of this, I know that a couple of the shows had been recorded. Um, what are sort of the plans moving forward? Yes, there are other shows. We know that, but do we start thinking about a studio album? Do we just put out a oh. live album? Like, what do we start thinking of going forward into the end of two eighteen, going into two nineteen? Um, well, going into studio, that would mean a whole bunch of new material. So that. We haven't really uh, discussed that. That's that's um, that would be down to the the the, the current uh, version of, of Foreigner. So uh, the show that we're doing is is mostly um, the you know the hits, and there are quite a few of them actually. And um, so, um, but there is the um, the show the shows that I mentioned that we did in Saginaw, Michigan, uh, were videotaped and recorded obviously and um they are being prepared i think for like a dvd or blu-ray release i think the idea was to to release that uh um by christmas this year but i'm not sure what the exact release date is but that um that's that should be that should be good as well so as far as recording a new studio album that hasn't even really as far as i know hasn't even been discussed but um you know, the idea of this show is to have the original band come on and play the early hits and, uh, you know, uh, so but well, it's an idea. <laughs> it's a great idea. So so if I can, let, let's look at the beginning of the band real quick, because you've got Mick Jones, who was in Spooky Tooth. You've got yourself in King Crimson. Foreigner is not just this sort of rookie band that 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 played out of the bars i mean it, it essentially was an early super group where you have these guys of these well-known bands getting together talk to me about coming together at the beginning and and you know was it was it this sort of 
we're going to make a one-off and we'll do an album as as these guys from no okay no no the the idea was to put a to put a band together i i had met mick mick jones on a recording on a uh on a, a recording session um for ian lloyd by the way your listeners may may know that he was the singer with stories with the band stories and you know louis louis brother louis Yep. Um, any, anyway, so we, Mick and I met on the session for for Ian Lloyd, and Mick mentioned to me that he was thinking of putting a band together. Would I be interested in getting, you know, getting involved? And I, I said yes. And uh, so we went through the process of, um, um, you know, putting, uh, putting that band together. It wasn't even, it wasn't thought of as sort of a one-off, and I. <clears throat> Um, and it, it wasn't a sort of a so-called supergroup or anything like that. Um, it was basically Mick and I um, agreeing to to um, uh, you know to, to put a to put a band together, and we had we went through the process of looking for the lead singer, which of course was an essential part of it. And um, so it was no, it was basically. You know, like any like any other band, you know, who who is available, who who would be suitable, and all that sort of thing. You know, and um, I know when I heard um, Lou's voice, uh, I I I I said to Mick, "That's him. That's our guy." Because we'd been looking for, you know, the singer, uh, that you know, to to join the band. And I, I after and after just a few seconds of hearing him, Lou sing, I, I said, "That's the guy." So that's how that happened, and um, so uh, yeah, no, it was. Well, um, well, let me just quickly ask you about that. Was that an audition process? Were you at a club seeing him sing? Did did you have a whole bunch of cassettes to work through? What what was the process? No, no. Of find, okay. That was there was Lou was in a band called Black Sheep, and we had and uh, uh, Mick got hold of a copy of that, and now you know a vinyl, you know an LP, and um, I went round to mix. Uh, a, a apartment where he was living at that time, and he put it on. I said, "Listen to this." And so he put on the Black Sheep record. And um, as I said, or I may have said, um, after about twenty seconds of hearing Lou, I said, "That's our guy." Um, but <laughs> Mick did um, want to go through an audition process, so uh, uh, you know, Lou uh, did. Uh, come come into town. I think he was living in Rochester at the time, and uh, you know we did did uh, did do a form of audition, recording recording a couple of demos of the songs. Um, all along, I knew that he was going to be the singer anyway. So, but that's <laughs> um, but uh, uh, yeah. So that it was um, it was it was very methodical and and, and planned out. Uh, uh, effort, you know, and yeah. uh, and by the way, has he, Lou ever not lived in Rochester? I mean, he's always. I don't. Right? You know, he's he's always been there. I, that's right. He's there now, I believe. And um, yep. Uh, uh, yeah, that's that's his hometown. Yeah, that's that's right. So, talk to me about making that first album, the you know, Foreigners, Foreigner, because when you because it we are now looking at uh, forty-one years ago. When you sit down and look at that album, feels like the first time. Cold as ice, mm. head knocker, uh, at war with the world, which is one of my absolute favorites. Uh, long, long. Oh, yeah. I mean, it really reads like a greatest hits. It's not even an album. It's 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 a compilation mm. of greatest hits. Um, talk to me about putting that one together and and 
just assembling it and 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 just the whole process uh well that's a big that's a big question but um i i i don't know i mean i i felt that uh we had something uh we had something uh there you know um and um uh I, it was it was it just felt 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 good and um my i have a lot of memories i uh, you know well cold as ice was another one on there and um uh <clears throat> i remember recording that that song doing the vocals and it was a base a, a snowy night in new york and was a, a literal blizzard of uh coming down and we did all these the vocals in one one uh, one session so that was a one one memory but i i remember because um, <clears throat> i co-produced the album um, uh, as well, which I, I have a tendency to do, <laughs> and um, I, I just remember in the mastering in the cutting room where you actually cut the, the cut the vinyl. You, um, I just I just remember that um, that moment when we were actually cutting the the first album, literally cutting. They called it cutting. It's a, you know you making the. Making the, the tape uh, edits with with a razor blade back. Then. <laughs> well, well, back. But that's the ed- that editing. But I, but actually, um, you know, actually making the disc, actually cutting the disc. You know, making the um, the uh, the um, I can't think of the word, but the, you know, the, the the main thing. I just remember, you know, hearing it going through and watching the grooves being cut, and you know, really feeling feeling good good about that. So I love that process. You know. <laughs> well, you know, when the, all the, all the work you put in, and they, you're actually finally finally cutting cutting, uh, you know, the, the the disc itself. So, um, but yeah, I you know, I I I felt we had something there, and it turned out to be a sort of an out of the box hit. And I, uh, I, I I I I think that term was almost applied coin <laughs> about about foreigner because it you know. It was uh, it was a hit right away, and, and so I'm very proud of that. And um, you know, that, those hot, the, all the you know those the, those memorable uh, years uh, to, uh, touring with the band and everything. Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, it comes out it, it comes out and goes to number four on the Billboard charts. Next album, D- Double Vision, does a little bit better, goes to number three, and Head Games goes to number five. I mean, for 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 three <laughs> sort of debut albums to be top five on all three. It's phenomenal because mm-hmm. if you look back at, at some of the bands, whether it's Kiss or the Black Sabbaths or whatever, these bands that are still going today, they can't say that. Some of them yeah. didn't. Some of them didn't get it. Didn't get recognized until their fourth album. Um, so okay, so talk to me about Head Games because you have this phenomenal success. Head Games comes out. You 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 do the tour and so on and so forth, and then. What happens because you don't make it to the four album? You you leave. Yeah. What happened well, there? I, well, I worked I worked on the preparations for for four and now Greenwood as well. And um, but um, there were apparently there was a decision to reduce the the number of members of the band, you know. And so uh, uh, for whatever reason that might be. So so um, Al and I uh, found out one day that uh, we. We weren't needed, um, so um, which is a bit, bit of a bit of a shock. Um, and but 
you know, I, I immediately said, well, you know, good luck to them. Uh, I, I, I hope they miss, miss me, miss us, but good luck to them and uh, all the best, you know. But it, that, was, uh, that was a decision from uh, Mick and, and Lou. And so, you know, that's, that's the way they wanted it. So <clears throat> it, wasn't, it wasn't our choice. But, um, you know, it turned out, it turned out okay. Everyone gets along these days, and um, and as I say, these reunion shows are, are are working very well and a lot of fun. They really are. Um, so let me quickly go over here to uh, in the court of uh, Crimson King, the, the uh, King, yeah. the the, yeah. the uh, King Crimson album. Um, yeah. First of all, the the one thing that we notice or or that histor- history has sort of shown us is that that album cover is absolutely. Right. Um, iconic. I guess. I mean, there's a, yeah, I knew you were gonna, right. I mean, that, 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 that that's the only word you can describe it. I mean, that <laughs> that that you will see that on walls and on T-shirts around around the world, and some people won't even know that it's it's King Crimson. They'll just say, "Oh, look at that picture." Um, yeah. Talk to me about the importance, first of all, of of the the visual representation and that artwork, and then talk to me about that album and that process because yeah. that's another okay. one that had a 40th well, anniversary edition and, and people are like, yep, that's, that's a big one. Yeah. Well, it's, it's actually coming up to the 50th now, but, um, uh, well, that's a lot of, that's a, there's a lot of topics in that one question. The 50th, the, right? We're, boy, the, we're, we're um, both getting, we're both getting old for crying out loud. Oh my God. A 50th. Well, no, I mean, well, I'm getting younger every day. I don't, don't know about you, but, but um, uh, yeah. the, uh, no, the, well, the cover that was, that was painted by a friend of, uh, the, Peter Sinfield, who was the lyric lyric writer of, of that album, and um, uh, his name is Barry Godber, and um, uh, so um, yeah, I mean that that that, I've, that that cover has been on you know the best best of lists I've seen. I was and you know I've, I, there was there was one uh, one list and it was it was it was nominated as the best album cover, you know. Never or whatever, <laughs> so it's which is pretty incredible. But um, yeah, uh, it, 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 yeah, you're right. I mean, it does it does show up on t-shirts and and, and everything, and, and on sides of buildings and all you know all kinds of like strange places. I've seen I've seen versions of that. Um, so um, yeah, I mean, I've seen yeah. So. Um, um, it's it it does uh, it does does get your get your attention. And I remember when the album came out, there were in the, there was a, a record shop near where I lived, and the the entire window of the record shop was that cover. You know, they just put like a dozen or more copies of that uh, in the window. So um, I guess it, I guess I guess it does get one's attention. Um, <clears throat> what do you want to know about that album? Um, well, okay. Well, well, let's go to then. The, you know, the big song, "21st Century Schizoid Man," obviously covered by Ozzy Osbourne. Uh, here in Canada, April Wine has covered it. Many others have covered it. Um, talk to me about the music and putting that together, because that also was just one of those albums, one of those songs. Uh, you know, working yeah. with Robert well, Fripp and Greg Lake. I mean, it, it just seems to me that. Looking back, you bounce from basically from supergroup to supergroup because these are not mm. just regular players. These are like and yourself, by mm. the way, above and beyond different different level musicianship. <clears throat> uh-huh. 
just wondering where to, where to start with that. As far as um, 21st century schizoid man, well, first of all, the album, we, we had very little time to record it. There was almost no budget and, and very little time. So we just had to get the thing recorded as, as quickly as possible. <clears throat> and in fact, the song that you mentioned, 21st century schizoid man was, was the last song that we, uh, last tune that we put down. And, uh, we did, was, uh, we did it all in and the whole thing was done in one take from beginning to end. Um, so I'm quite <laughs> fond of letting people know that, you know, so, uh, the, the big, from that, that there was no second take and there were no edits. We just went from beginning to end one take, just one pass. And, uh, that that was uh, that's the one that's on the record. So um, there were uh, there was a couple of overdubs on it, but the basic track with the uh, four piece of uh, um, drum, uh, bass, drums, guitar, and saxophone were all done together, uh, as I say, in one take. With with uh, and and that's that, that's it. So um, yeah, I mean we, we it was. It was it was a great it was a great band actually and um, we uh, we all had we, we basically um, had the we we uh, knew what we wanted to do with it in terms of um, what what worked <clears throat> you know in in the rehearsal and what worked in the studio and so um, uh, yeah. And uh, the, the song Epitaph happens to be my particular favorite of that record. I think Greg Lake did an uh, incredible vocal, and uh, the, uh, the, the 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 instrumentation and the arrangement and the structure of the song, um, I think, worked really well. So it really did. And uh, <laughs> uh, I do want to get to 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 get it on Bang a Gong, but I have to first ask you about uh, Driver's Eyes, the, the the one and only oh. solo record in your career. You have on there a, a personal friend of mine, a guy named Mitch Weissman, who of course did Beatlemania and, and <laughs> with Gene Simmons and so on and so forth. Um, talk to me about that 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 one solo album because after you you left uh, Forder and King Crimson and so on. And so forth, why not get into more solo work? Why why wait for Gamso for Honey West? Why wait to get to a band? Why not just say, "Hey, I'm Ian McDonald. I know what I'm doing." No, why not well, have five or six or seven solo albums? No, no, no. Because that. Well, thank you first of all for for mentioning that that album. Um, it was a huge undertaking, and uh, it was you know um, uh, I had uh, it was basically it was really a solo album and. Um, it was a um a solo album and uh i i did uh the organizing of it and and the logistics and and and, and traveling over to you know, to different studios to record different people and it was it was um it was um it was a lot of a lot of work um uh, uh, uh so um and you can't, you know. I, I just, I couldn't just like, well, I'll do another one. <laughs> you know, it's, it was, you know, these are these are these are big undertakings uh, and uh, some uh, something like that. And it's not just like, well, I'll record a few songs in my in my garage or my living room. And it's it was a it was a lot more than that. There are a lot of best singers on there, and I had to travel to 
England to record certain people, and I had to, you know, to, and it was all on on the two-inch multi-track tape, and I used to have to, you know, lug those tapes around. I went down to Nashville to record Peter Frampton, and um, you know, we carry you with these big tapes under my arm, and, and the same same thing going over to London to record Steve Hackett and, and um, Gary Brooker, and you know. It was it was a yeah. it was a lot. Uh, um, so um, uh, and uh, it, the, the actual recording and arranging uh, that 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 was um, you know the, I, I I could say that I knew what I was doing, I, which I did, you know. And um, uh, so that's but uh, you know you just can't climb Mount Everest, you know, every every year, you know. Um, right. But so. Uh, um, but um, but uh, no, I, I did that, and and it's also you know material that you can't you know yeah solo album, but you have to write has to be written, you have to write, have to accumulate the uh, enough material of songs, you know, to warrant to going into the studio, and so um, <clears throat> yeah, there was I I mean I did various other things after after that, but. Um, uh, as, as I said in, uh, earlier on, by the, you know, I was ready by the, by the time I, I met Ted Sikowski, uh, my, my writing partner and, and the singer in with, with Honey West, I was, I was, I was ready to take on something, uh, significant again. Um, and so, um, ready to, to put all my energy into, into something, um, substantial. You know, and uh, so um, yeah. I mean, it took a little while to to um, get my, get get myself ready to to do it again. To you know, to to plunge into something to something else. And I and I and I, and um, as as I as, again as I said earlier, the, I'm, I'm very pleased and pr- proud of the way the the Honey West record turned out. You know. Yeah, it, that, that Honey West album sounds absolutely spectacular. And just just before uh, I leave the uh, the driver's eyes here, just for fans that may or may not have checked it out in the past, there's also G.E. Smith, John Waite, yeah. uh, Kenny yeah. Aronson. Uh, I said Mitch yeah. Weissman, Lou Graham sings a track. It, it, Peter Frampton does a guitar. I mean, it, it's 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 just yeah. it's, it's a phenomenal phenomenal piece of work. I mean, from my perspective, everything you seem to touch turns to gold. I mean, it, it just seems to be <laughs> that way. But uh, let let me finish here with this today because we're we're at almost forty minutes. Um, yeah, of course, I, I, I need to wrap it up soon. Yeah, so I'll wrap it up with this. Uh, get it on the the T Rex song. Another thing that yeah. you lend your vocals to, or not your vocals to, but your your baritone, the the saxophone to. Another yeah. thing that turns to gold. Um, Talk to me about that song because you have been on these songs, whether it's the Foreigner stuff or the King Crimson stuff, or you're just on these ubiquitous, iconic songs. Uh, talk to me about that session and coming in and uh, playing on it. Um, yeah, I, I don't quite remember how that that came about. I did meet um, Mark Bolan. I did um, at, at some point. I'm not quite sure how or when that was. Um, and uh, he um, he must have played me the the, the song or the track, and I I said I can I can I put some baritone sax on it, and he he agreed, and um, I borrowed Mel Collins' baritone sax, and <laughs> I didn't have one myself, but, um, and uh, just went in and 
put that uh, Barry on there and, uh, and an alto sax as well for this. And um, it was all like done fairly quickly, really. Um, and uh, it came out and it was a, it was a number one hit. It's the one tune that I played on that was actually became a number one so that's my that's my claim to fame there (laughs) (laughs) and and proving my theory that whatever you touch turns to gold uh Uh, (laughs) let's remind the folks that uh honeywestmusic.com of course the band is on all the different social medias but start off with the website honeywestmusic.com do check out the lyric video for dementia on youtube and uh, bad old world Uh, is available on cd and soon uh, the ver- the, on vinyl. the collector's yeah. edition vinyl. The, the collector's vinyl uh, edition is coming out. Uh, Ian, and there's also sorry to go uh, ahead. Yeah, please. So, and all, there was also a um, a video for the for the for the song "Bad Old World." Well, that'll right. be coming out soon as well. That's and that's that um that's that's that turned out pretty well. So yeah, so it's you know it's all it's all happening. There's various um, videos available that you can find here and there and uh uh i'm really looking forward to the vinyl uh, version uh coming out we uh i i went mastered it most well i didn't actually i, I was in the mastering room but I, it, I i you know i heard it being i was i was there as as a producer um uh, when when we made the, the the vinyl master and it really sounds really good um and in the meantime the cd sounds great too and so uh I hope um, I hope a lot you know many of your listeners can get to enjoy it. Yeah, and I, I hope they do, and I hope they they check that out. And of course, uh, December first, I'll be seeing the uh, Foreigner reunion show at the Mohegan Sun down there in the Hartford area or the Connecticut area. And uh, hopefully, okay. I'll get a chance to come and say hello. Uh, just gonna yeah, be a fantastic evening. Yeah, I hope so too. I'm you know I'm not sure of the situation there, you know, um, uh, but. Uh, I, I, I hope you can. I hope uh, we can get to meet in person. That would be great. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Great, great pleasure. Uh, and as they okay. and, and as folks like to say, big fan, big fan. Just love everything <laughs> you've done over the years. Uh, and thank oh, you wow. for what forty-five years of just keeping me entertained. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Uh, thank you. And we didn't even get some McDonald and Giles. <laughs> no, there's a lot of stuff that we missed. I, I mean, we didn't even delve into the we didn't delve into head games. We didn't delve into to double vision. Right, yeah. uh, I mean, I, yeah, this could have no. been a four hour conversation. But uh, listen, we will keep well, it for a well, part two. Maybe we can. That's exactly. Yeah, let's do that. Uh, thank you very much, Mitch. I appreciate your interest. And uh, and, and uh, hopefully uh, we can meet and I look forward to meeting you. And uh, and uh, and thanks, you know, thanks to your listeners as well. Yeah. And of course, honeywestmusic.com. Thank you, sir. Thank you, folks. OK. okay. Cheers thank now. you. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Thank bye-bye. you. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk. And a big thank you to Ian McDonald. Do check out his new band, Honey West. And, uh, you know, listen, we are going to move the show along and finish off with Andy Darris, the longtime vocalist for German band Halloween. The band is currently on tour on their Pumpkins United tour. That is a fantastic name for a tour, I must say. Uh, and, of course, it features everybody from old and new we've got michael kiske on there Kay hansen and everybody else it's just a, a an incredible extravaganza and uh, quite frankly something i'd like to see kiss do let's get ace fraley bruce kulik vinnie vincent peter chris eric singer everybody else throw them on stage and call it a kiss party but uh 
Alan, are, are, are you a long-time Halloween fan? Because I know that back in 1988 at uh, Donington, you had a chance to um, share a bill with them. It was Iron Maiden, Kiss, David Lee Roth, Megadeth, Guns and Roses, and let's not forget the Bailey Brothers. Everybody loves a good DJ at a heavy metal festival. And, of course, Halloween. Um, talk to me about that, that, that event, because as a fan, you look at that and you go, wow, Kiss and David and Megadeth and Guns and, and the, ba- the Bailey Brothers? Who? Um, <laughs> right? Uh, but talk to me about that event. Well, obviously, uh, when I see the name Halloween, um, it has a, a profound significance for me because it immediately reminds me of that day and what happened at Donington. Um, they, they were the band that were on stage immediately before Guns. And as I recall, Guns went on stage around about 1 o'clock in, in, the, in the afternoon, somewhere around there, 1, 1.30. And it had been a wet day. And Donington is a racetrack. And in the center of the racetrack is this sloping hill um, that forms a natural amphitheater. And I was once given a photograph of the audience that was taken the minute GNR took the stage, and it was taken from the air from a helicopter. And it is a massive turnout. Um, as I recall, I think there were over 100,000 kids there that day. And unfortunately, because the ground was wet, it became slippery and it became profoundly muddy and slippery the closer you got to the stage. And maybe there should have been um, crowd breaks placed throughout out the audience, but there weren't. And... The show was going terrific. Um, It was obviously the largest audience we had played in front of at that time. Um, We were returning to England having headlined ourselves and done a very short headline tour of five venues across England um, the previous, previous year, at the end of the previous year in October. And the record was starting to really move in the United States and there was an amazing sense of momentum. And, you know, obviously I had to take the band aside and say, there's a reason why there's netting on each side of the stage. And if somebody throws a bottle on the stage, one, you don't throw it back. And two, you don't drink from it. The last thing you do is drink from it because it's not containing what you would like to drink. Um, And they went out there, and the audience response was amazing. Um, If you watch the black and white footage from the Paradise City video, that's Donington. And I was staged left watching the band perform, and the production manager came and whispered in my ear. And it was pretty much exactly the last thing you want to hear at a moment like that. And he told me that, yes, they were having problems down at the front, which we could see. 
And he told me at that point that there were deceased bodies. And I had to get Axel's attention and get him to come over and talk to me and convey to him that we needed to control the crowd. We needed to slow it down, that there were problems in the front. But the last thing I was going to do was freak him out and tell him that they were pulling dead bodies out. So Axel came over and I said, listen, you know, this, we got serious problems down the front. Slow it down. And bless his heart, he went out there and did his best to take what was a storming set and slow it down and get control of the audience. And I suppose, thank God, only two died. Um, but it was utterly heartbreaking. Yeah, I can imagine. And and, and as you were telling me that story, I was uh, looking through pictures of Donington that day that, that I, I Googled. And it's it's it is it is epic in its in its mass and and also when you hear that story it's also just heartbreaking to know that because you know when we go to a concert when i go to a concert you're there to forget you're there to have a good time you're there to to celebrate the music celebrate the band members and the fact that you go and then two two of them um just want to have a good time didn't get to go home is is beyond uh, tragic and it's 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 hard to hear it's 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 a hard moment to hear and uh you know good on axel because we you know a lot of people in the media have spent years and years bad mouthing axel and and guns and roses as being all kinds of horrible things and you know at the at the core um there are moments like this where you realize that what he did and what he said had an utter importance and and probably helped save other lives because he had if he hadn't I, done that right? I, I don't I don't, I don't doubt that for a moment. And just to give you a little bit of perspective, I kept the information about those who had died away from the band until we actually left the venue. Um, we managed to keep, keep that from them until we actually left. And then I could break it to them on what had happened. But um, it, it, it was a, it had a stunning impact on us all. Um, Slash and I ended up in the bar of the hotel that night trying to drink it away but he in his book actually I believe he said it was that was the last carefree moment of Guns N' Roses as far as he was concerned Um, I'd like to think that you know Velvet Roses, Guns N' Roses whatever you want to call a reunion I'd like to think that there's a little bit of the carefree that's come back and the pleasure is just in the music. But I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, Mitch, when, when you have to deal with a circumstance like that, it is utterly heartbreaking to deal with it. So, so let me just quickly ask you then, um, why was the decision made to, to hold it back? Was it just because it's too emotionally draining that it, it, it just would have ruined them? And, it, and, you know, like you didn't want to rob them of their moment or thing, or, or was it just for safety precautions because you don't know what's going to happen. And, you know, cause that, that's a tough decision to make. I mean, if you, if you hold it back and they can come after you and say, Hey, why'd you hold that back? And if you tell them, they could say, Hey, why did you tell? Like it, it's, it's a no win situation. So was that just sort of talk to me about what was going on there in terms of we, we got to get this show done. We got to make sure these kids are safe and I also got to make sure my band is safe. Yes, 
and I had to carefully think about the impact on their psyches. They're just coming off stage having played in front of the largest audience they'd ever seen, um, and which had responded tremendously well to them. And there's also the fact that you've got to be, um, in this day and age, smart and pragmatic about everything you say about the situation. Um, so obviously I didn't want them coming off with an adrenaline high and having a shock like that, and then I'm herding cats, and I'm not sure what cat is saying which and which cat is saying what. I needed to get them all together at the point, tell them exactly what was happening, and say, you cannot comment on this to the press because there may be liabilities here, and I don't want you to be the target of lawsuits. Yeah, and that's you know that's the, but anyway, it's it, it is it is a, a treasure. Yeah, that's just managerial pragmatism, um, but it was also emotional pragmatism too because I know how I felt when when I was told that, and I was not in a hurry to pass that sensation and feeling onto my boys. I wanted to get them away get them quiet and explain what had happened and deliver it as carefully as possible. And that's not always easy backstage at Donington, darling. No, it's not. And and you, you have to appreciate the fact that when you're on an adrenaline rush, you, you know, you're you're hyped up and you're good to go and and that kind of news, who knows in that state what you might do. It 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 could be very very counterproductive. So, no, it's better to bring them back down to earth. Get them all in the room and have one voice say, this is what's happened. Because you're right, if, if the tour manager and the manager and the cable guy and the drum tech all start telling people different things, that's a whole Pandora's box that could lead to a whole bunch of uh, yep, nonsense that, that you want to avoid. Yep. And and you, yep. also, you also want to be respectful of of those that did pass away. So um, there you go. And uh, I don't want to say... Go ahead. The other aspect of that, too, was that... Uh, Unfortunately, at that moment, when I got the band off the stage and, and got them back to their uh, their cabin, um, I hadn't been given the full story at that point either. So I had to wait and see exactly how bad the circumstance was um, before, before I went and talked to them. So yeah. all those factors played into it. Um, and yeah, it and of course, you know... You were, really, Sorry, I was just going to say, but when you when a situation comes up like that, you're not necessarily trained uh, to to deal with it, and so it's easy to look at it 30 years later and say, "Well, you should have said this," or "You should." Unless you live the moment, you can't judge the moment, basically. Yeah. Well, I th I think we handled it right. Um, yeah. And when the time came, you know, the, the right and appropriate things were said. Um, but what I will tell you is that we were all heartbroken. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. And 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 if we can draw any positive out of this, because I'm looking at the pictures, like I told you, and, and that sea of people, um, it is of course tragic that two people passed away. But I'm just looking at it; it could easily have been twenty or two hundred because it's it's just crazy. Yep. And yep. so, yep. so you know, um, and and we'll give credit to Axel if if he hadn't slowed stuff down, things down, as you mentioned. It might have been twenty. So yeah, no, he he reacted exactly as I needed him to at that moment. 
Yep. So so good for him. And uh, without without wanting to sound disrespectful to those that passed, I will move on to the uh, interview portion here of uh, Halloween and Andy Darris. Their tour is Pumpkin United, and of course, as fans, when something like that at Donington happens, we need to be fans united. So. Let us celebrate the united in all of us. And here is, without further ado, from Halloween, the one, the only, Andy Darris. We are speaking with Andy Darris of the band Halloween. The band is currently on their Pumpkins United World Tour. It is an absolutely must-see event when it comes by your town. Andy, an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Likewise, thank you. So, let's get into this tour. I mean... You know, it's not every so often you hear about reunion tours. Kiss did it and others did it. And you go, well, they got the old members out and the new members in. And the whole. you guys decided, nope, we're going to have everybody on stage. Uh, talk to me about that concept and how has it been working? Because we're literally a year into it now, give or take a couple of weeks. Um, talk to me about the concept and how it's working and just how it sort of came together. Well, honestly, we are very grateful because we're one of a few bands who actually can follow a concept like that, simply because we, we are a band around over 30 years, meanwhile, and uh, we went through three decades of metal, and we like the classic 80s metal with the super successful albums like Heap of the Seven Keys, which already was sung by the second singer of the band. So we have to mention the first album was uh, sung by the guitarist, Kai Hansen, and uh, so to say we are probably, if not the only band, uh, let me think, that would be, oh, okay, Van Halen would be another band who, who could have uh, done something like that, like a re- reunion with Diamond Dave and Sammy Hagar, that would have been a dream come true, I think. But they decided against it. Um, we've been in the happy situation that uh, when, when I joined the band, we had another successful area going on. We had uh, double platinums and gold records all over the place, so... Um, we are very fortunate and quite aware that this is, uh, yeah, this is probably an exceptional career. So then it was just a, a very short step to the decision to make a Pumpkins United with the most uh, influential and most important pumpkins. And uh, there you go. This is the Pumpkins United tour. And I just hope it never stops. <laughs> right. And I hope it does. And of course, when you're talking about Van Halen, you, you can't forget Gary Sharon. He was he was great live. I know the album wasn't as good, but still. Um, but so so what talk to me about the genesis of this project. You know, you're it started off in 2017. So I'm assuming the talks go back to 2016 or something. Was there, you know, does does Marcus and, and, and Sasha and, and, and Daniel and stuff say, well, we're going to go back and, and bring back the first vocalist and we're going to bring back Michael and we're going to bring back Kai and we're going to do a reunion tour. And do you get nervous or are you part of that and say, hey, you know what would be cool is if we bring back those guys and do, uh, talk to me about it. And, and was it any was it stressful at any time that people sort of feel a little bit like, oh, well, what's my place in this? Um, concerning places inside the band, no, never was to talk about it because actually the whole concept seemed so so colorful and great that, that you had like one hour per decade. So that, that's why we run into a three hour show. Um, honestly, I felt like a bit relieved because when, when, when I got to know Michael Kiske, which is the second singer uh, of the successful Keeper of the Seven Keys albums, I got to know him for the first time, had a chat with him and I was super relieved because he's just a great boy. 
He is very down to earth, very calm, very thankful. And and I thought, well, when 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 I do a show with him and Kai together, that means for myself that I only sing maybe seventy hours per show, uh, seven hours, my Jesus, seventy minutes um, per show. That that makes makes it so much easier. And exactly this is what happened now. He is going to sing 70 minutes. I'm going to sing 70 minutes. Kai is singing his part. And for the singers, it's a dream come true. For the instrumentalists. For like, the drummer. <laughs> the drummer, the drummer yeah. is the poor ass of the band, so to say. Um, especially in the genre we play. And I mean, you can imagine this is like a, a constant power show, three hours. I mean, I don't envy the boy. <laughs> Danny, Daniel is really fucked up after every show, but... He's well trained, so I'm quite I'm quite confident that he does the job for another ten or fifteen years. Knock on wood. But yeah, I mean it's a dream come true. But you're right, we we we'd all been very scared in the beginning because uh, the idea seemed great. It it seemed like uh, the thing to do, but it all stands or falls with the personalities and the chemistry inside the band. And I'm happy to say that this is like a dream come true because the chemistry is great. The people accept it very nicely, and uh, yeah, I mean, here we are. And the chemistry has worked out very, very nicely, in fact. So much so is, can you see the band going back to just being you as the singer? I mean, at this point, do we move forward with Michael and Kay, and this is the new Halloween, Halloween, I should say, going forward? Or is there a point where you go, okay, it's been a pleasure having you, but now we're going to move back with just... Andy as the singer, and we're going to go back to just being us. Well, the, the latter, I hope, will not come true because the, that would mean that the chemistry would not work out in the future. I don't see that uh, in, in, in the moment. It, it seems like going on forever like that because we have a lot of fun. And because of the uh, already mentioned reasons that the, the, mainly the singers have a much easier life because they, they share the show. So this is really a dream come true for each and every singer. Uh, going back to the old uh, Halloween form we had since 94, which means Andy, myself as a singer. Yes, this is also possible, but I, I, I just hope it never comes true because now we are in planning of doing, of doing a new record with this lineup. And uh, I can see ourselves touring like that until the end of the day. So, oh, yeah. That's... Again, knock on wood. <laughs> knock on wood. And, and that's great. You know, as, as, as a fan, it's nice to have sort of both eras represented going forward. But also, you know, listen, as we all get older, especially as a vocalist, it's, it's probably nice to go do these concerts and have a little bit of a breather. And yet the fans still get a three-hour show. So let's talk about this new studio album. It was announced recently that it might come out in 2020. Um, Talk to me about the progress on that. Is that something that you've started, but because of the touring, you can't get to until later in 2000, uh, 2019 and then 2020? Or is it something that once the tour ends, you'll go, okay, now we got to go figure this out? Mm, mixture of both. Um, already collecting ideas, sitting here in the hotel room, having my new Telecaster around me, which I love very much. Um, so you fiddle and diddle. And, and when you do that, because it's my biggest hobby, I never asked to be a singer. I always wanted to be a guitarist. And uh, so it, it comes it comes naturally that I sit in the hotel room and collect some ideas. Same probably counts for Kai and Waiki and Sasha. Everybody's fiddling and diddling because it's during the tour, sometimes very boring in the hotel room. So it's just you and your guitar. <laughs> so 
there you go. I mean, uh, after the tour, I think like uh, the last show will be on the 22nd of December. So uh, this means we go on touring this for this year and, and to 20, 2019 will be songwriting and, and studio recording um, and put all the ideas together, which we already collected. And uh, then we have to give ourselves another three or four months where you may sit at home and, and really do some songs out of these ideas because an idea is not a song, as you know. So uh, it's always great to have a great idea, but a great idea definitely doesn't make a great song. It's a long way to go. So uh, I would reckon that 2019 is for songwriting and studio recording only, um, which makes it very probable. Yeah, I think 2020 would, would be the date to release, yeah. Yeah, and, and I believe that's what Nuclear Blast has sort of said, that they're looking forward to a 2020 release date. But So, so talk to me about how what the format of that album would look like. Would it be sort of you and Michael doing sort of co-vocals or, or duets, for lack of a better word, on every song? Or do you see yourself doing five songs and he does five songs? How, mm, how, how do no, you sort you of... No. You, can't, you can't schedule that, I think. It's like when, when the songs are on the table you realize this is a great song for Michael. This would be a great song for Andy. Maybe maybe even a great song uh, for Kai. Um, and and the good thing is you may mix uh, even duets or a part sung by Andy and, and another part sung by Michael. And uh, like we did on the Pumpkins United song, um, which we released um, a few And uh, here we are. We we are back with uh, with Andy of Halloween. Of course, we're, we've had some connection issues on uh, on the german side i guess it's been a little <laughs> a little more complicated but we were talking it will about always always be the german side we are digital third world so to say <laughs> but but before the uh, the connection dropped out we were talking about the uh, about the single pumpkin united that came out at the end of uh, 2017 in fact talk, talk to me about that song and the importance of before heading out on the tour or as you being out on this pumpkin united to have some new music to say to the fans, hey, you know what? We're not just going to do this sort of a, we're not just cashing in on a tour. We're actually interested in producing new music to give to you. Um, talk to me about that recording session and, and that song and putting it out. Well, it was a, a yeah, kind of, I don't know, accidental shot. <laughs> so there was an idea. Kai had some, some, some verses going on. I had a refrain and uh, Waiki came with a riff. And, and somehow it sounded like, yeah, it could fit together and uh, let's try it. And uh, then everybody sang the song and the producer just switched uh, the, the three vocalists and uh, here you go. Um, the idea was actually to show exactly what you just mentioned, that it's not just a we go on stage together and uh, that's it. Uh, but that, that there is much more behind it, theoretically, because I always told everybody um, in the interview that this is not a, a forced, we must go until the end of the days thing. We're going to do it as long as the chemistry is great and as long as we enjoy it. Um, that's a luxury, I may say, because you don't need to go on stage. You you go on stage because you want to. And this is, uh, that's that's real luxury for, for us being musicians because we all come from a time when you only played clubs and you had to go to, to a tour to actually make some money for a living and these days are over, so it's 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 just fun, you know. Everybody uh, has his house and everybody has his life, so nobody's forced to go out there and play forever. And the the, the great thing is when you want to go out and play. I mean, this is wow, dream come true, I think. And uh, 
that's when the song came about and, and we said, okay, let's show the people that everything is possible, that even a future uh, album would be possible and that, that this chemistry probably works. And when you listen to the song, you realize, okay, this is not just a, oh, there, we don't have more material, we just put it out and there you go and eat it. Uh, it's, it's a great song, if you ask me, and all the strength of the band from, from the different decades, Kai Hansen decade, Michael Kiske, Andy Darius, everything is in there. And it works, you know, you got three decades of metal in one new metal song. I, I, I enjoy that shit, you know. Yeah. So I'm looking, I'm looking forward very, very much to uh, to the new album because I'm a big Kiss fan, as everybody knows. Yes, and Kiss has, um, if we if we count in um, the drummer, I think uh, he he even had the first hit for Kiss, Beth, the the ballad Beth. I hear you calling. Oh, listen, you're talking to the greatest. Canadian Kiss fan. I'm looking at a Ace Frehley. Oh, there you go. I have okay. a Kiss calendar to my right, and I have a Ace Frehley head to my left. So there you go. So you know that Peter Chris actually was was the one singing the first hit yes. single for Kiss, which yes. which was the drummer, and uh, then it's Paul Stanley who probably sang the majority of all songs, and James Gene Simmons, I would say, a third of Kiss songs, and there were always songs where they sang together as a duet. Uh, like like Paul was, for example, right. like singing shouted the verses. out loud and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, or Gene was singing the verses and Paul was singing the refrains or together and and I love that. I love that. It's it's just a great variety uh, that that you may put in into your music, and that's why I'm looking forward to the new album. I mean, I really think that's that's something really special. Oh, that's going to be great. Now, you have mentioned in other interviews that you've become great friends with Michael and also Kai. Is that something, as you move forward to the new album, that you'd like to try to write with them? Because I'm assuming you've never written with them for an album. So is that something you look forward to? Yeah, because we, we've written the Pumpkins United song. We've, we've written of, together. Of course, the, of course. So, so it, it's no... It's no new land that I that I step on here. I mean, this is something that uh, I learned. It, it's possible. It's fun. It's stress. It's uh, laughing. It's shouting. It's like the, the, the typical songwriting process of a band. So you love you love you you love each other. You hate each other, and you fight for your parts. And that's exactly what what it's what what it's about when you're as a band when you're songwriting. Because otherwise it would sound like a typical Andy Derry song and uh, some will like it, some will hate it. Or a typical Kai Hansen song, some will like it, some will hate it. But the mixture is interesting. The mixture that you've got now is like everything Everything is in there, all the spices. And uh, for me it was new. And when I listen to the song, I enjoy it. I say, oh, okay. I mean, in the beginning it was like, oh, we could have done it different here or different there and blah, blah, blah. But at, and at the end of the day, when you're, when you're used to when, when, you, when you listen to it three or four times and you just take it as it is, I mean, you accept it. At the end of the day, you accept it the way you, uh, it sounds now. And then, then I started to love it and to understand that these styles, these different spices, work, they work together. And that's the main, the main important thing, that you are really able to combine three decades of metal 
it doesn't sound like new metal. It doesn't sound like 80s metal. It sounds like something in between, and that's what I like. And and who doesn't like pumpkin spice? It's such a such a great, right? <laughs> well, I, I would I would know people who would not like pumpkin spice. <laughs> right. That's another story. Okay, that's another story. Now, of course, you've got the uh, the DVD, Blu-ray, CD that's going to come out in early 2019. You're, you're sort of picking, you're cherry picking the best moments of the tour. Uh, just talk to me about that and, and putting that together. And, uh, you know, is it going to be more documentary style or is it really just going to be a live concert, but taken from different shows? All right. A little bit of the latter. And uh, yeah, and a little bit of, of interviews and everything. I say yeah, it's, it's a mixture, but I, I would say like 80 uh, percent uh, focused on, on the live shows. Definitely. That's great. And uh before we, we, we hang up here, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about Pink Cream 69. It was a band that you helped form. You essentially wrote the first album, if that's fair to say. You were there, yeah. for, you were there for three albums. An incredible band that in North America, if you say Pink Cream 69, people look at you like, what are you talking about? And yet, <laughs> right? I mean, unfortunately, um, just talk to me about that time in that band and that decision in 93, 94 to say, you know what? I'm going to go to Halloween. I'm going to give that a shot. Um, and and so, so talk to me quickly about that band and, and forming it and, and the fact that in Europe, love them. In North America, they, they, they don't exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, this, this, uh, this was actually because of political release uh, reasons of uh, our back in the days record company, CBS nowadays, Sony. And uh, we had only contracts for Europe and Asia. So the release was only Europe and Asia. And uh, I'm happy to say that the first two albums were both uh, top 10 in in Europe and and mainly Japan. Um, Yeah, it was kind of a, it was skyrocketing in Europe and and, and Asia. Unfortunately, the United States uh, were always left aside. It never got a release there. but we were happy. I mean, we had top 10 albums. And uh, I remember back in the days, and, uh, after the second album, yeah, um, the trouble started inside the band. They suddenly told me that they want to change the music into something like Alice in Chains and more more serious stuff, more dark. And uh, Pink Cream was always a very colorful, more yeah positive party band. And uh, I hated the idea to change into something dark and... and and yeah, already their style. I mean, I love Alice in Chains, but I didn't didn't want to my band to sound like Alice in Chains. I mean, this is something that I listen to privately. But when you already play in a successful band, which is more colorful, more positive music, and why change? That I did not understand. And uh, when it came to the point that I made the boys listen to my new songs for the next for the third album. And they told me that they are not going to play these and that and that song. And this is too primitive. This is too cheesy. This is too party. This is blah, 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 blah. At the end of the day, I really ask myself if I'm playing in the right band here. And Michael Weikath from, from Halloween was a long year friend because we'd always met in Hamburg where Pink Cream 69, my former band, um, recorded the demos and, and the first albums. And he was already, well, a long, long, long year friend. And, uh, he, he smelled that there is some trouble going on inside Pink Cream. And then he gave me a call and told me that he would rather split, but rather break, uh, split up um, Halloween if I would not 
join the band now. And I said, okay, you know, this is perfect timing. I come up to Hamburg and let's talk. So I remember Markus, the bass player, and, and Waiki um, sitting with me there listening to my new ideas and, and I saw the gleam in their eyes and they really loved my songs and I thought, well, then this is my band. And uh, from there on it was yeah, an easy decision to say, okay, I'm, I'm rather changing to Halloween. Yeah, and you know, the, the, the story you tell of what we call sandboxing in the industry it happens a lot to the Canadian bands. When you talk to Larry Gowan, who's now in Sticks, or the Honeymoon Suite guys, and you go, well, why weren't you bigger in the States? They go, well, Warner Canada had us. It's such a yeah, silly, yeah. I mean, and thank God that Poli we're... It's politics, it's politics. But you have to understand, or at least I nowadays I do understand uh, that the Europeans, Sony, or back in the day, CBS Europe, and unfortunately, the call dropped again, but let's get right back to Andy Darris talking about Halloween's 1994 album, Master of the Rings, and how he used songs that were originally destined for Pink Cream 69. All the songs, all the songs, yeah, yeah, are, are like old Pink Cream songs, and I just sat down with Wacky, the guitarist, and we Halloween Halloweenized it, so to say, and uh, it works out fabulous, like these perfect gentlemen, or in the middle of a heartbeat, why parts of Soul Survivor, parts of Where the Rain Grows. And yeah, I mean, it, it works out fantastically. But uh, yeah, back in the days, my old band didn't want the songs that that were too cheesy and too hard rock and too pop rock. And we just metalized it into Halloween style. And there you go. It works. Right. They, they didn't want the songs that became classic Halloween songs. Boy. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Fun, funny, yeah. <laughs> funny stuff. Right. And, and of course, years later, they, they did this expanded edition where you cover I Stole Your Love and Closer to Home, which is a Grand Funk Railroad song, which, of course, Bruce yeah. Kulik plays in now. So sort of a double kiss connection there. But uh, absolutely. Uh, and of course, Cold Sweat. Uh, let's oh, not yeah. forget. <laughs> where I was honored to play the guitar in the studio. <laughs> yeah, and by the way, one of the greatest Thin Lizzy songs ever, and, and ironically, Megadeth does an incredible, well, your version is incredible, but Megadeth, the heavy metal guys seem to do Cold Sweat yeah. fantastically. They, yeah. they really do. Um, Andy, an absolute pleasure. I know we've had all kinds of internet struggles to get this done. Well, for, for that, I would say welcome to Germany, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and I will, of course, say uh, welcome to Montreal. You are here on September 12th. Of course, the tour keeps going. It doesn't end there. Uh, it goes all the way to the end of uh, December. And are we touring at all in 2019, or is it really let's focus on this new album? Focus on it. Yeah, I would say. There you go. Don't, don't leave the studio. <laughs> don't. Yeah, don't leave the studio and uh, yeah, and, and get out of Germany so we can get a better <laughs> phone connection. Yeah, but uh, yeah, yeah. definitely, there you go. And uh, if possible, I'll come out and check out your show on on September twelfth. Let me know if that's if that's doable. And uh, thank you, thank you for this morning. Absolutely, and let's uh, take care. Cheers now. Bye bye now. Cheers. Bye. From the Westwood One Podcast Network.